Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we're going in slightly a different direction. Our guest is singer Curtis Steigers. So you may remember almost exactly 30 years ago, in fact, they just uh, had kind of an anniversary. He broke out in 1991 with his debut album, and this song right here, I Wonder Why, became a huge hit, understandably. Well, he was kind of the talk of the town there for a while, and you probably remember... He might be most famous for having the cover of What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding on the Bodyguard soundtrack that made Nick Lowe a really rich man. We talk about that at the beginning of the conversation here. Anyway, after a few albums in this sort of vein, he decides to go jazz. And he's been doing jazz music for about 20 years now. And he's, he's incredible. He's among the best at the genre. Now, I know that not everybody... Jazz may not be for everybody, especially on a podcast like this, where we talk mostly about rock and pop and new wave and stuff like that. But Curtis is really exceptional at what he does. He just put out a new album called This Life that includes some reimaginings of old songs like I Wonder Why in his new kind of jazzier vein. And I will say too, it's my favorite Curtis album for sure. And if you're new to this or you're questioning whether jazz is really for you, I think this is the best album to start with, to be honest, because, again, it reimagines songs you may know, and it's not quite as jazzy as before. There's a lot more soul and R&B going on in this album than in other albums. What's really cool about Curtis, too, again, if you're thinking, oh, I don't know if jazz is really my thing, what's great about Curtis is that he's a music nerd just like the rest of us. And so we talk a lot in here about the bands that mean a lot to him. He became really good friends with Nick Lowe. We talk about him covering Crowded House, covering the Blue Nile, covering Richard Thompson, working with Carole King, all this great stuff. Curtis is a blast. If you don't follow him on Twitter, you should, because he's one of the best follows there are out there. Anyway, I've always thought, what must it be like? What is his story? You start out as this great singer-songwriter in kind of the pop-rock Americana vein in the early 90s. You do it for a little bit. Unfortunately, Clive Davis is involved, I'll just tell you that. Sometimes his name comes up on here for good and sometimes for bad, but it comes up a lot, and uh, this is one of those times. And eventually, you you decide your heart is uh, is in jazz, and you go that direction. It's a really fascinating trajectory and I wanted to hear Curtis's story. So anyway, he's also from Boise. So Curtis called me from his home in Boise, Idaho. No one's ever called here from Idaho. All right, here you go. I think Taylor Swift is fine. I, I think she writes her own songs, I, I swear. Think I think she does too. I follow you on Twitter and I saw, in fact, <laughs> I didn't know what the story was. I just saw you uh, make a comment. Oh, come on I just now, said, Damon. I said, Damon, like dude. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. What what, uh, what, what happened? And so yeah. I had to go research the story. And yeah. I'm a huge Blur fan, but come on. 
David. Well, we yeah, I mean, he, what does he need to, you know, <laughs> diss anybody else? He's great. What the, you know, I, know. I don't know. It's just, you get, you get with, with, a, with a, especially a Brit, it was probably a British, or actually, I don't know if it was a British uh, um, a journalist. I mean, I've said things over the years that I, I thought, oh yeah, he, he got me. I shouldn't have had that, that drink with him, you know, before we did the interview, it's like he, he tricked me into saying that, but uh, yeah, that was a bit much. I mean, come on. She, yeah. If you don't, if you don't like someone's music, you just say, "Oh yeah, they're great." You know, yeah, that's that's it. It. whatever. Yeah. You know, it's Doesn't it's matter. subjective. Who 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 knows? Mm-hmm. Anyway, okay. So first and foremost, I'm afraid I have to probably ask the obvious question that maybe you've been asked a million times. I don't know. Famously, you practically gifted our uh, the wonderful Nick Lowe millions of dollars by covering Peace, Love, and Understanding on the Bodyguard soundtrack. I've always wondered what you got out of that deal. <laughs> well, my ex-wife has a really nice house. <laughs> <laughs> That's my standard joke uh, when, okay. I, when I set, I when I set the tune up. Um, uh-huh. She does. She does have it. You know, it's not, it's not fancy or anything. Uh, Nick, I would say, made a lot more money from that than I did. The, the problem was I was on, well, the reason I got on the record, which was very lucky, is that I was on Arista Records. Mm-hmm. I had... I had a, 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 a new album in the charts. I was, you know, I was a, I was a pop sensation. Kind of a hot young thing. And, and Clive Davis, the president of, of Arista Records, offered me a slot on the record. I had a track on the record. And I, I set out to write a song for it. And I wrote four or five songs uh, specifically to get on that soundtrack. And every time Clive would say, oh, it's all wrong. It's not. Uh. And the funniest part of that is, or the weirdest, the goofiest part is that the scene uh, uh, in which the, the uh, track appears, uh, it's Whitney at a, at a makeup table in a dressing room at a club. And on the other side of the wall, the opening act She's going to do some special, you know, record release thing or something at this club. Um, she's a superstar. On the other side of the room, uh, there's a band playing, and that's the opening act. And it and it sounds like this, <laughs> and that's it. That's what you hear. Nothing. It's about. I mean, if it's 15 seconds long, I'd be surprised. You can't hear what the song is or anything. That's how my song ended up on the rec or in the movie. Uh-huh. So it wouldn't have mattered if it was three blind mice or Mary had a little lamb, but, um, but it did end up on the soundtrack, which because Whitney Houston sold 40, or I mean, had five big hit singles, it sold 45 million copies. And uh, anyway, I can't even remember what your question was. Well, I just wonder, you know, he famously talks about how he, suddenly got millions of right. dollars in mailbox money. Yeah. He, um, 
he he says that he 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 tells the story that it was just one giant check of a million dollars, yeah. which I doubt it was a it was a big check for a million. But you know, when he started getting those those checks, he did in fact call me out of the blue. Okay. I got a call from my hero, um, you know, someone uh-huh. I'd admired since since I didn't even know really what a record producer did, but uh-huh. I knew that Nick Lowe produced yeah. all the you know those first five Elvis Costello records, five of my favorite records, and also was you know a great artist. Rock Pile, I love Rock Pile, mm-hmm. loved uh, you know Cruel to Be Kind. Anyway, what I got out of it was you know I mean I I made some money, but not nearly as much as Nick because I was on the label that put the record out. Therefore. The money was cross collateral or cross collateralized. It's a it's a trick that the the record companies do. They take the money that you've made and they spend it on the things oh. that you think they they're spending money on. So my second record, uh, Clive Davis kept making me re-record the record over and over again because he wasn't happy. He didn't think it was slick enough. It wasn't middle of the road enough. It wasn't, you know, hit enough. And so he just kept making me re-record it. My second record cost a million bucks, more than a million bucks to make. All that money came out of my my pocket. So when I left Arista Records in 1997, 98, I was still in a red position. I still, you know, officially owe Arista Records uh, money, even though... I was on an album that sold 45 million copies. Oh, anyway. it's rigged. The system is rigged. I, <laughs> well, I have you know, to ask. It's, it's, it's funny how the people who can afford the really good lawyers yeah. uh, always seem to win. But uh, That's true. That is true, especially in this day and age. Um, so I have to ask then, when you covered Lately I've Let Things Slide on the Gentleman album, was that a little nod to the past or is it just a coincidence that you picked another Nick Lowe? With a growing sense of dread Held a hammer in my head Fully clothed upon the bed I wake up to the world That lately I've been living in There's a cut upon my brow Must have banged myself somehow can't remember now The front door's open wide Lately I've let things slide I go to the bin Oh, I I just love Nick Lowe songs. I do too. I recorded, yes. I recorded another song of his uh, before that. Actually, in in two thousand and three, my my album uh, um, "You Inspire Me" is oh, named after the, the right. title track, a wonderful Nick Lowe song from the yeah. late nineties that I, I love. So no, I'm. I, not not only do I love Nick Lowe and and his music, I think he's one of the most brilliant songwriters alive. Yes. Um, but he's also my friend. So uh, um, really? which has been which has been fun. I mean, when Nick Lowe called me that day, I mean, it was like suddenly I was you know I was talking to someone that I I was uh, I, I admired greatly. He was my hero. Um, and over the year, what, one of the things he said is, "You shall never buy another dinner as long as you live in London when you come to London." <laughs> And he did, he has in fact taken me to dinner several times, and I've also had dinner at his house, and yeah. I even stayed at their place once. Uh, no you know, he's, he loaned me his car once. Actually, that guitar right there, I'm uh-huh. the, the, the it's a Gibson J45. 
some years back out of nowhere, I was having a really terrible Christmas uh, season. I was uh, kind of the end of my, my marriage, uh, my, my first marriage. I was heartbroken. I was just wandering around like a zombie. And I went to my mailbox, the, you know, my UPS store to pick up my mail. And there's this giant package for, and it says it's from London. And I look a little closer and it's from a guitar store and I open it. And Nick Lowe, just out of the blue, I had I'd borrowed this guitar from him once, and he was kind enough, kind enough to lend it to me. I said, God, it's oh, I love that guitar. It was so much fun to play. He sent it, sent it to me for Christmas. And he didn't know that I was having a bad year. It just happened to, you know, it was oh. just kismet or whatever. And yes. so, I mean, I it's one of my great, uh, uh, it's one of my great, it's a treasure to me. Yes. And, the, and yes. his, his friendship has been really lovely. His wife uh, and his kid are friends of mine. I mean, our, our kids played together Incredible. when they were little kids. It's really weird. I mean, this is one of the things that I love about being a recording artist is I get, I get to meet my heroes. I'm a fanboy first and foremost. I'm a fanboy. You know, it's so much yes. fun. That's one of the things that I love about having this podcast is hearing people like you tell these stories. Cause I started it cause I'm a fanboy too. So sure. when I, you know, when I look at that guitar and I know that it was gifted from Nick Lowe himself and how much that matters to you. And I love Nick too. And it's, it, there's nothing better than bonding with people over music. You know, yeah. it's just yeah. the best. It, it brings us all together. Sometimes. It does. <laughs> so let's talk about this life then, because on the new album, you do another version of uh, Peace, Love and Understanding. But this yeah. one sounds almost like Curtis Mayfield. As I walk this wicked world Searching for light in the darkness of insanity I ask myself, is all hope lost? Is there only pain and hatred and misery? And each time I feel like this inside One thing I want to know oh, What's so funny about peace, love and understanding What's so funny about peace, love and understanding That's it cool. is like funky that. and like seventies soul cool. funk. Cool. So tell me why, tell me how you thought of this. Well, over the years, I've been trying to figure out a way to play peace, love and understanding with my, with my touring group, which, you know, for the last 20 years has been a jazz quintet. Mm -hmm. You know, I started making records for Concord jazz in uh, 2000, in 2000 and, uh, or 2001, I guess. And it, it, uh, it, this was a hard one. We, we, because it's, you know, on uh, the, you know, the Nick's original version rocks um, Elvis Costello's version rocks my version on the bodyguard soundtrack rocked in kind of a, you know, I don't know, whatever. I, I'm not crazy about my version on, on the bodyguard to be, to be honest. Uh, it was just, uh, it was of the moment. And it, the idea was it was the, it was the closer for my sets uh, back in the early nineties. Mm. Uh, I would, I would play the, the end of the, the end of the show would always be peace, love and understanding because it rocked. It had, you know, it was like a, an R and B rave up. 
so but but trying to do that with it with a group that doesn't have guitar a guitarist that is just acoustic piano bass drums and me playing sax and sometimes a trumpet player um it really was hard to figure it out and we'd play it for a while and then we'd kind of get tired of what we were doing with it and we did it once sort of very james brownie what we ended up with here on this record i think of it um as kind of a a 60s soul jazz kind yes. of a thing um, yes. you know like uh the less McCann or, you know, mm. the sort of, yes, really, it, good it's one. got that, it's got that jazz yes. uh, funk and, and soul all thrown in and um, it works. We also, you know, it, it's not nearly, it, it's not nearly as sort of overwrought as my version on uh, of the bodyguard uh, over the years. I mean, that was 1992 when I recorded that these days, I, I, I sing songs because I want to tell a story. And even though it's funky, I sing pretty mellow. I sing, um, you know, for for lack of a better word, I sing with restraint. I let the song do the 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 tell the story, and that's that's really what I try to do. Even even when we're we're slamming, I I really try to hold back because I I I, I tried too hard when I was a kid to prove that I'd listen to a lot of Ray Charles. Okay, we get it, kid. You know, I listen to my first record and I think, God, you were really trying too hard, man. <laughs> So, okay. First and first of all, before we get off of the new version of Peace, Love and Understanding, you play yeah. saxophone on that, mm-hmm. which I know is a talent of yours, but you I feel like you don't pull it out as often as maybe you could or should. I don't know. But you let it fly. How do you decide when's the right time for you to contribute some sax and when it isn't? I uh I I consider myself a singer who plays sax. Ah. Um I have I have strengths as a saxophone player, as a saxophone player, and I have non-strengths, weaknesses. Let's call them weaknesses, shall we? I'm not really a jazz saxophone player. I'm a rhythm and blues saxophone player, even though I make, you know, in in big air quotes, jazz uh, records. So when it's a real jazz tune, I step back, I let the trumpet player take a solo or I let uh, the piano player take a solo. But in something like Peace, Love and Understanding, where it's this 60s soul jazz vibe, I mean, that's like, that's got my name all over it as a sax player. That's the, that's what I grew up listening to is more. I mean, really, when I was a kid learning how to play the saxophone, aside from the jazz band at school and, and that sort of a thing, the, the people that I was listening to, the people that I was trying to emulate when I played saxophone were guitar players. I wanted to be Jimmy Page. Mm-hmm. I wanted to play like I wanted to play saxophone the way Jimmy Page played guitar or or uh, uh, even BB King or Albert King. You know, I listened to a lot of the blues when um in in high school and and uh, into my college age years. I, I I listened to that. So I mean, when I play the saxophone, you can probably hear more BB uh, King than than you're going to hear uh, Charlie Parker or, or Dexter true. Gordon or something. So anyway, this 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 version of peace, love, and understanding is just, it's, it's right in my wheelhouse as far as uh, uh, stylistic uh, playing. Yeah. And then other things on the record, you know, I mean, I play a little soprano sax on, on one of the songs we re-recorded. I mean, the whole album is made up mostly of songs that I've re-recorded from my career. I re-recorded the, the three hit singles from my first album, my first big pop album, but we do them entirely differently. Now we yeah. do them as a jazz quintet. So I wanted to, since it's the 30 year anniversary of that first album, I wanted to uh, give an example of how these arrangements 
have grown, how these songs have aged just like I have. I'm, I'm 56 right. now. I was 25 when that first record came out. It, 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 it seemed like it was time. 30 years seemed like a good, a good time to look back and also mark how these songs have changed, how they've evolved, you know, from um, I mean, Peace, Love and Understanding. I recorded that uh, the year after my first record. That's it sounds totally different than that record. The uh, the Sons of Anarchy theme, which I yes. co-wrote and, and, uh, and sang for that show. Right into this world, all alone. God takes your soul. You're on your own The crow flies straight A perfect line On the devil's bed Until you die This life is short Baby, that's a fact Better live it We do a, an entirely different version with a jazz quintet because we're not a blues rock band. Mm -hmm. We do a cool, dark version. We maintain that, but it's different. So that's the idea for this record is, is a look back, but at the same time, looking forward to where, you know, where I'm going and, and what I sound like now, as opposed to what I sounded like way back then. Okay. So I have to ask, and I, maybe I missed it somewhere. I, a song to me that needs to be added to the canon of covers that are better than the original is Tonight Will Be Fine. Oh. I have, I've been playing that song on a loop since I got it. Sometimes I find I get to thinking of the past We swore to each other our love would last I kept right on loving, you went on a fast You are too thin, my love is too vast But I know from your eyes And I know from your smile That tonight will be fine, will be fine, fine For a while I choose the rules that I live in with care. 
Wow. It you, is my, fantastic. Wow. Your okay. version, I'm saying. Your Thank version you. of that Very song much. is fantastic. Now, I should admit, I'm not the world's biggest Leonard Cohen fan. So mm. I was kind of, I had to de- do a deep dive. Where did this even come from? I don't know this song. I'm not aware if if you cu- if you already performed that on another album, I, I missed well, it or it didn't. There, there are two Stand songs out. on the record that I have not recorded before. One is Tonight Will Be Fine, the Leonard Cohen song. And the other is the, the one old standard on the record, Summertime. Summertime. And the living is easy Fish are jumping And the cotton is high Your daddy's rich And your mama's good looking So hush little baby Don't you cry One of these mornings You're gonna rise up singing Spread your wings And take to the sky But until that morning Ain't nothing gonna harm you With your mama and your daddy standing by in the summertime that's what i thought that's a an arrangement that i've i've been playing off and on on the road since well before my first record it came from it came from a a group i played with when i was in basically just just out of high school we 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 created that for the the young jazz lions anyway so back to the leonard cohen song I didn't learn that song from a Leonard Cohen record. I'm a big Leonard Cohen fan, but you know, some of his records I really like and some of his records I like less, but I love almost every song. I mean, he just is, he was such a genius. Um, And this song, it's so perfect, but I didn't learn it from a Leonard Cohen song, a record. I learned it from Teddy Thompson's version, Richard Thompson's son, Teddy Thompson. He does a version of that. He performed a live version of it for the movie i think it's called oh is it i'm your man i think i think it's a it's it's a it's a, a live concert tribute to leonard cohen oh sure while sure he, yes while he was still alive i've seen that and, actually and teddy sang that song and i i just have it on record and i love it i think teddy yes. thompson is is a an underappreciated gem of a singer songwriter uh-huh. and and a beautiful singer i mean he's got he's just got this lovely, uh, lovely sounding voice. Anyway, I heard that. And, and one day we were on the road. I played that for the guys in the van. I said, do you think we could do something with this? I know it's simple, but do you think we could do what we do with all these other, with these Elvis Costello songs or these Merle Haggard songs or these kinks songs or, you know, whatever. That's what I do. I take modern pop songs or or pop songs anyway and i turn them into jazz tunes the same way that ella fitzgerald did the same way that charlie right. parker did the same way that john coltrane did take pop songs that you love and you take them apart put them back together in a different more jazz oriented way and they said well let's try it at sound check and so we started kicking it around oh. this song just 
it this arrangement was born at sound checks and eventually it got to the point where we thought yeah we should play this tonight and we did uh-huh. and we started playing it and it always gets i mean some people kind of scratch their heads because it's pretty deep it's pretty it's very jazz you know and, and uh-huh. there's an amazing jazz piano solo by matthew freese and a lovely oh. solo at the end by by scrapper by john scrapper snyder it works it works yes. as a jazz tune because it's a great song. And that's yeah. the thing that I, I, that's one, the thing that if, if my career does nothing else, I think my career proves that you can make a great jazz tune out of a great song, no matter what, um, no matter yes. where it comes from. That's, I'm going to uh, ask yeah. you about a couple of more of those that I particularly like in a bit, but I just, I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it, Curtis, because that song blows me away. Oh, and I, great. like I said, I've been listening to it on a loop ever since I found it. And, uh, I can't get over it. And and I always think to myself, to me personally, the, the, the key to a great jazz ensemble of any kind, you're only really as good as your rhythm section to me. Sure. But then whenever I listen to that song and I think, well, but the, the piano is making this and that trumpet that you're talking about is the most yeah. gorgeous accent. And the way that you're those, those minor chords that you're fitting in there that aren't on the Leonard Cohen original. And I'm just thinking, or, or on the Teddy Thompson. Yeah. No, I mean, right. They, and they I, built, I mean, they, they read these guys. I mean, this, this was definitely a team effort. We all worked this out and you know, they, it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty great. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you like that. Thank you. For I do. That. I'm, I'm, it, it doesn't, you know, I, I'm doing a lot of interviews for the record right now, obviously, because it's coming out uh, on February 25th and I, um, and no one has mentioned that song yet. So good on you. I'm, I'm oh, really, I'm glad I'm, I'm proud, proud to that. do it to me. It's probably your finest hour. Uh, and there's a lot of them, but that's the moment yeah, to me that uh, again, I'm all goosebumpy just talking about it. So uh, let's go back because the thing, one of the reasons that I most wanted to talk to you, Curtis is because I've just always been curious as to why you went jazz. <laughs> why did you do that? I mean, I and that's probably the question you get asked a lot, but you're the, you, you have this first singer songwriter album. That's in kind of the spirit of people like Mark Cohn or Joshua Cadison or whatever that are, you know, putting out music at that time. And there's a couple more of those and you have all these heavy hitters supporting you and playing on these albums, Danny Korchmar and Shelly Pikin and Glenn Ballard and everything, everybody in the business who matters is supporting you right then. But you decide to go and, Sing jazz standards. Why? I went, what happened? I, I went for the big jazz money. That's what. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my that's my uh, my my joke for that. Uh, yeah, I, I you know it got to the point. I made I made three pop records. I made two pop records for for Clive Davis at Arista Records. He drove me crazy. We we didn't we didn't see eye to eye. He wanted me to record other people's songs and work with producers that you know I thought were fine, but they weren't. It wasn't the direction I wanted to go. I was trying to go toward you know John Hyatt and Bonnie Raitt and Al Green. That's who I yes. sort of saw myself um, hoping. I, I hoped I would be compared to them. And and he was looking for something else. He was looking for a slicker, and uh, I didn't want to do that. I just didn't want to do it. And uh, you know, I maybe. Maybe I it it could have worked, and I would be rich uh, and and uh, super famous right now. But I don't think so. I mean, I think you've got to love what you do. I think you've got to believe in what you do. I certainly do. I've never been able to. Um, I've never been able to play music that I I didn't love and look myself in the mirror. It just 
it just drives me crazy. I mean, I, I, I've heard stories about Tony Bennett when he was young recording for Columbia records and Mitch Miller, the, uh, the head of A&R would make him record these songs that he just hated and he'd go throw up, he'd go into the, into the restroom and barf before he sang them or after he sang them, he was so upset by it. I didn't want to barf. <laughs> I, um, so um, I left Arista uh, mid, well, 97, and I and I signed with Columbia uh, Records. And they let me, finally, they let me make the kind of record I wanted to make. They let me make the singer-songwriter, the real singer-songwriter record. Bob Thiel Jr. Uh, and Ed Cherney co-produced it. And, uh, you know, Jim Keltner played drums and Davey Farragher. I have questions from- about that. You co-write uh, with Carol King. Like a steam bath, but it's cold as a tomb beneath my skin. I got no one to blame myself for the shape I'm in. Rolling south out of Natchez on a greyhound, rocking like a cradle. Fitful off to sleep all alone in the heat of the night. Then I had this dream. You were there beside me on the streets of New Orleans. How does Carol King like? Sure, I'll write with this young, you know, whippersnapper that's had a couple I'm so, of hits. I'm, I'm so lucky. Uh, uh, in, in the case of Carol, um, I had I had recorded uh, "Home Again" from from Tapestry, the, the song "Home Again" for an album called Tapestry Revisited. Which, right. you know, I mean, I'm not crazy about a lot of that album. It was a bunch of different people recorded songs from Tapestry, uh, you know, from that classic Carol King album. And, you know, a lot of it, I, I think missed. I was really isn't, happy isn't with mine. Rod of course. Stewart on there was so <laughs> what, far what's away. That? What's that? Didn't Rod Stewart do so far away on I that I think one? he did. Yeah. You know, and, and it's fine. It just, I don't, it didn't sound like, yeah. it didn't sound like a lot of people believes yeah. in the music that they were making. Whereas I just had a ball with it. Anyway, I met Carol sometime not long after that. Um, she actually even sent me, I have a, a lovely little note from her saying, thank you for saying such nice things about me because I was talking about how much I loved her and, and loved recording that song. And then we met at at a at a at some sort of a, I don't know, a, a fundraiser, some sort of a, a charity event. And I got to sit in. I played I played j- uh, saxophone on, uh, on Jazz Man. You know, I mean, I, it was really wild. She also, we have a connection. Carol has lived uh part of her life anyway in idaho for you know from uh she's spent part of her time always in 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 idaho which is where i grew up moved to new york for 16 years but i came back and i live here again so there was the idaho connection i you know i wondered i I ended up visiting her at her her ranch here back then and uh um and we got together and i found myself in carol king's living room writing a song it was crazy it was just and and she's playing these piano she's playing the piano or a keyboard in her no i think it was a real piano actually of course it's carol king's house um, <laughs> and and she's doing this stuff that's like it's 
oh my God, she plays piano like Carol King, you know, I mean, it was, it was really wonderful. She is everything you'd want her to be. She's, she's that, that sweet, beautiful hippie chick. Uh, Yes. Tough as nails. She's a businesswoman. She's an uh, an incredible artist and technician, as far as right. I mean, her writing skills. I mean, I learned so much from her. She one time she said, "You know, you do this thing where you you always go here like that. That's not where you should go. You should go over here." And I was like, "Yes, Carol. Yes, I will do. I will. I'm gonna. I'm writing that down." Um, so it was really it was really wonderful, and we wrote a few songs together. Then I had this dream is the name of the song that made it yes. on the brighter days, which, okay. which came out in 99 on Columbia. That was my Columbia singer songwriter record. Uh, and uh, unfortunately my mom and like 10 other people bought that album. That was it. That was, it was basically, so my third album, um, I finally got to do what I wanted to do, but by then, I mean, all the momentum from 1991 from my first album was completely gone. Even by 95, when, when time was my second record came out, I had an album in 91, then battled with Clive for three and a half years for creative control. He finally put the record out. And by then, in 95, I mean, all pop stations were alternative yeah. stations. Yeah. Everything, you know, everybody was playing Alanis Morissette and Alice in Chains and, and uh, uh, Nirvana. And those are the stations I listened to. It was great stuff. But there really wasn't a place for this, for this pop, uh, you know, kind of pop singer who was trying to reach toward Americana, but his president wouldn't let him. So, so anyway, by the time 99 came around and I finally did make the singer-songwriter record I made, uh, I, you know, I, I wanted to make nothing happened. And uh, there were, there were a lot of things that went into it. There was a radio guy who was going to be the champion of the record. And he, he quit Columbia, like the week before my record came out. Oh, it was just, no. it was so, so it basically that record just died. And it's, yeah. I, it's still um, one of the records I'm most proud I of. I love brighter, it. Yes. Brighter days. Uh-huh. Davey Farragher from uh, uh, Elvis Costello and the Imposters plays bass all over it. And Val McCallum, the great guitar player. And of course, Keltner. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was heavenly. Oh, and Ben Montench from, uh, from yeah. Tom, the Heartbreakers. It, I had so much fun, and I've got such great photographs. I have such uh-huh. great pictures from that. And Jackson Brown. We recorded that record in Jackson Brown Studio in Santa Monica, California. And you know, once or twice a week, Jackson would drop by to pick up his mail. So I'd be in, you know, having a cup of coffee in the in the little kitchen. Jackson would sit down and open his mail and 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 chit chat with me. It was crazy. That was, I mean, oh, oh the mailman's here, by the way. If oh, you can okay. hear dogs. That's, That's uh, okay. <laughs> the mailman. <laughs> the mailman. Uh, for some reason, my dogs have not learned that it's the same guy in the same outfit. <laughs> He's really nice. They, you know, he gives them treats, but they right. they hate him. I don't know what it is. Anyway, I don't classic. know if anyone else has that problem with dogs. And I think everybody dogs. does. Everybody, <laughs> everybody's dogs pull that same trick. But but anyway, so so the, yeah, there I am. You know, a couple times a week, uh, you know, opening mail with Jackson Brown and chatting, and eventually uh, Ed Cherney, the one of the you know the co-producer, the late great Ed Cherney, my dear old friend. Um, he he said, hey. Hey, Curdy, he called me Curdy. Hey, Curdy, you think you want to have Jackson sing on the record? I'm like, are you kidding me? (laughs) So so Jackson Brown sings a harmony with me on on the last song on the record, uh, Uh, Dark Night. When the deep 
And I got to I got to produce a Jackson Brown vocal. I got to Holy sit cow. in the studio and and push the button and say, "Yeah, um, do that again, Jackson." Will you? you know, it was it was uh, it was fantastic. I, I really again, wow. I'm a fanboy. This is the yes. kind of stuff that that's why I, I love these stories. I, I, I you know I, I don't I don't care if I get paid uh-huh. for it. Just just uh-huh. let me meet my heroes and play music right. with them. So then, singer songwriter comes to an end. You decide yeah. to devote the rest of your life to jazz. I grew up always a consideration. I grew up studying jazz. I grew up playing clarinet and saxophone from the time I was like, I started clarinet when I was nine, I think, and uh, saxophone when I was 11. And when you're, when you're a saxophone player, you learn about jazz. You find, you go out and you try to find the music, your saxophone, where your instrument is played. And it was jazz. I had a neighbor across the street, Eric uh, Sandmeyer that, uh, got the, uh, for Christmas one year, he got the Smithsonian collection of jazz. It was like an eight or nine disc set. And we started listening to John Coltrane and Sonny Rollins and Miles Davis and, and Sarah Vaughn. And it was like, my head exploded. So I grew up doing that. I, I had a jazz scholarship at college. I, you know, that I, I, not only do I know about jazz records and jazz musicians, but I, I, I know it. It's, it's what I always played jazz. I even, when I was a kid um, g- growing up here in Boise, I started going to a jam session when I was in my, in my teens uh, of a jazz legend who happened to retire to Boise. His name was, it was Gene Harris. Gene uh, sadly passed uh, away in, in 2000, way too young, but uh, Gene Harris and his group, the three sounds were this, really influential jazz trio from, uh, who recorded for the blue note label in the fifties, sixties and seventies in the seventies. He just got sick of where jazz was going and he, he retired in air quotes to Boise, but he played five nights a week, mostly for fun, you know? Uh, uh, and Tuesday night he had a jam session. So I was jamming with one of the greatest jazz pianists on the planet on a, on Tuesday nights, you know, before I went in home Boise. and finished my homework. Yeah, it was crazy. Wow. And it wow. was free to get in. And it was in the lobby bar of the Idenha Hotel. So I could, even though I was underage, I could go into this thing. And if I stood in the right place, 
I was, you know, I was okay. And plus it was, you know, it was the, it was the early eighties, late seventies. Yeah. So it, it, you, they, they didn't really worry as much about uh, underage drinking. And I did sneak a beer every now and then I'll admit it. <laughs> right on. <laughs> it was so a, huge, a huge influence on me jazz wise. So after brighter days, I had actually, I had recorded a jazz record when I was still at Arista. This is kind of a weird uh, little known fact. I recorded a jazz record after my second record at Arista, thinking that Clive would leave me alone. His right, his second in command said, if you don't want to work with Clive, just make another kind of record and he'll leave you alone. I did. I made this my first jazz record, which ended up be, becoming Baby Plays Around. She's out again tonight And I'm alone once more She's all I have Worth waiting for But baby plays around And so it seems I've always been the last to know To hold on to that girl I had to let her go I wish to God That I didn't love her so Cause baby plays around I try to be strong Hold on to my uh, With Larry, Larry Goldings on piano uh, The late Dennis Irwin on bass Bill Stewart on drums And the great Randy Brecker on trumpet And we made a straight ahead jazz record When Clive heard it that's when he finally let me out of my record deal, which is what I'd been trying to do for right. years. So, um, so I had that record still with me and I went to Concord records, which Gene Harris had been, um, you know, he, he'd been an artist on their label for a long time. Uh, so I knew them. I'd sung on one of Gene's records as well. And I took this little jazz record to them and I said, here I am. I'm done chasing hits. I hate putting out an album that I've worked on for a year and a half uh, and, and just to have it be considered a failure because it didn't get on the radio in the first yeah. two weeks of its release. I want to make music and I want to play music for people. And so at that moment, I made the decision to no longer worry very much if right. my album sold a lot and I I started making a living entirely on the road playing concerts. And that's what I've done ever since. And it worked incredibly well until the plague. Yes. Yes. <laughs> until until uh, uh, COVID kind of threw a, a wrench in it. I was home for a year and a half because of COVID and that was tough. But before that, I, I really was kind of a, a business genius entirely yeah. by accident because mm -hmm. The record business fell apart. The CCD sales went away. You know, no one's really, I mean, very few people, certainly in my, in my, at my level uh, are making any sort of money from right. selling records because of, because of streaming. And so the idea of making a living on the road, it, it turned out to be a good idea. And it was a, it's a lot more fun. I mean, really, yeah. I just, I, I never really loved the pop scene. I loved meeting my heroes. I loved getting to be on TV shows and tour and all that stuff. But the actual, you know, the just the 
the ass kissing was, was so weird and yeah and and the and the image stuff and the oh you know the where's your long hair and your this and it's i don't care about my hair just listen to my record will you right anyway. right so has boy so boise let's talk about that because yeah. i think you're the out of 400 and something people I've interviewed, you're the only one who lives in Bo- in Boise. Uh-huh. And, uh, my, but my, I'm originally from Salt Lake city. My dad grew up outside of Pocatello. Okay. And so Southeast Idaho is, that's where all my kin is from and grew up in those little tiny towns. Sure. And I've got a lot of friends from Boise. Boise is one of the hot cities in America right now, as you know, it yes. went from like 150,000 people to like half a million suddenly because every, that's where everyone wants to go these days. Yeah. yeah. Has it um, ever been a deterrent or not a deterrent, but like an obstacle being based out of Boise to carry on the kind of career that you've wanted? Well, I, I had to move to New York. I mean, I, in yeah. 87, I was 21 years old. I had about, about nine months, a year before that I visited New York city for the first time. And at that time, as a 20 year old, I realized I had to get out of Boise. If I was going to, if I wasn't going to end up being jaded and grumpy, like the, the really good musicians that I played with in Boise at the time, I played with a lot of guys who were older than, than I was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm this 21 or this 20 year old kid playing in the most successful band in town with guys who were in their early thirties who are really pissed off that they didn't ever get a record deal and they didn't do the thing. They didn't, you know, everyone's on MTV and where are they, you know, they're playing in, they're playing in clubs and they're making more than anybody else in town, but still there was a ceiling. I knew I had to get out. I didn't really know that I was going to go, you know, learn how to write songs and get a record deal. I just knew if I left, I wouldn't be grumpy. Yeah, <laughs> I, wouldn't yeah. be, I wouldn't be bitter. And, mm-hmm. and I fell in love with New York um, and, uh, and I moved there. These days, you could probably, I mean, who knows? I don't know how you make it in the music business anymore, but then I had to go. There wasn't YouTube. There wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't the internet. You couldn't reach people. You couldn't get out there and, and get your music to people. You had to go do it. You had to go out. And I mean, I got, I got signed playing in a restaurant on a Sunday night really? in New York city, because that's where the record companies were. I knew, I knew when I went to New York, I, I realized, okay, this is a city that even though there are tens of millions of people here, um, it's small. Manhattan is a small place and you know, it all, all the music at that time was really happening in a very small area. And I, you know, I went to the first time I went to New York, I, uh, some buddies took me down to Bleecker street in New York city. And we went to the rock and roll cafe and on stage was the Robert Ross blues band. And um, they were great. Just a cool little uh, blues trio. And I had been playing in a bunch of blues bands at home um, in, in Boise and played saxophone, you know, that again, the, the, I wanted to play like BB King, you know, that's, that's how I learned to, to play uh, saxophone was listening to BB King. And so I, I heard that band and I thought I could play with that band. I could, I could hold my own. I got to move here. And then a couple of minutes later, um, Rick Derringer got up on stage, <laughs> you know, um, uh, rock and roll coochie coup forgot the uh-huh. raspberry. He, he got up on stage because the bass player in the Robert Ross band also played for Rick. And I thought, Holy shit. I could play for this. I could play for um, Robert Ross band and Rick Derringer. Yeah. This is, I'm moving. And so yes. that was honestly, that was the moment I thought I got to go home 
and I got to make enough money. I went home right after that and I put a band together uh, specifically to make enough money to move to New York City. I, I, <laughs> I put this band together. I knew by then I knew what it took to, to make money as, as a band in Boise. We, we played dance music, but like dance rock and roll. Uh-huh. You know? So we played like, um, you know, any 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 cool song that uh, wasn't a, a, a modern pop hit. Uh, that people could dance to. And yeah. so uh, I went home, I made enough money, which I found out later was not enough money. There's never, <laughs> you, you can never, you can never move to New York city with enough money. There's right. always going to be, you're always going to need more, but uh, I basically had, you know, enough money to get by for a while and a, and a duffel bag of clothes and my saxophone and my, my buddy, we drove across country. He went on to Brown university in, in uh, Rhode Island. And uh, he dropped me off in New York city. I had a place to stay for a couple of months and, uh, and that was it. Uh, That's so, how it anyways, works. I don't know, even know how I got off on that. Table. Well, I don't know, but I love these stories either too. <laughs> um, so I've been noticing you posting these kitchen concerts yeah. on Facebook live and stuff like that, that you're doing. Tell me about these two. I mean, I'm guessing as you were establishing and, and there are, hundreds, if not thousands of musicians in a similar place as you, where no one can go anywhere for a year and a half. And these days that's where people make a living. And so their living, their entire living is shot, you know, shut down. Yeah. I'm guessing this is just a way for you to stay in communication with your fans and to let yeah, them know you're still that, there. I mean, originally I tried Patreon. Patreon is this, uh, some people know about it. Some people don't, but it's a, it's a website basically where you can, upload uh, videos and and things like that and uh, people pledge a monthly patronage five dollars or ten dollars a month or 20 we have some patreon each level you get a different thing well i started making videos when i'm sitting here in my kitchen not able to tour not able to make any money and not able to promote my my record with my last record uh gentleman came out about a month into into the pandemic so i mean it was just like what am I going to do? So I started making videos, um, you know, with, with iMovie, I taught myself, you know, I taught the old dog taught himself some new mm-hmm. tricks and, uh, and I started to really enjoy it. And I was, so I was, I was, I was playing songs. I actually had a feature. One of the levels was songs from my kitchen and it would just mm. be a song, whether it was one of my songs or a, just a cover song that I wanted to, to try out. And, uh, I, I made a bunch of these videos. What I found is, was that it was, it bugged me that only a hundred people or so were seeing all this work that I was right. really proud of. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't making enough, very much money with it anyway. So I just figured hell with this. Let's just, let's just go live. So I, I found a producer. Finally, I found someone who could help me with the technological stuff. I, I shied away from the live stream thing early on because early on in the pandemic, I saw and heard some terrible concerts not because the you know by by people that i loved musicians that i loved friends of mine even but it sounded and looked so bad that i thought oh yeah i don't want to do that i don't want to represent myself that way and so that's why i went toward patreon which was more me making videos that i could control i could make them look good i could film them i could light them correctly um i bought you know i bought all all you know all manner of gear to 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 record myself at home but uh, um Eventually I went for this live stream and it's called songs from my kitchen the, and an hour a week, every Wednesday at 1 PM mountain time, which uh, translates to 8 PM in, in London, where a lot of my fans are and 9 PM in, in Europe, where more of my fans are. I, I do a show and I just, I, I play some songs. 
my dogs do a few tricks. Um, I mean, it's really, it's really, I always, you know, I joke throughout, I kind of do my David Letterman, ladies and gentlemen, this is world-class entertainment. <laughs> and, you know, that's, and that's, it, it's really, it's very down home. It's very, uh-huh. it's very homely as the, yes. uh, as the Brits I love would say. It. Um, and yeah. it's, it's really fun. And Good. I have learned so many songs I didn't know, especially my own songs. I mean, uh-huh. songs from my first record that I never played on guitar because I wrote most of them with somebody who played guitar or played piano. And I was a saxophone player who, you know, now and then strummed a guitar. But I'm, I'm, I've gotten pretty good playing, mm-hmm. playing the guitar because of this thing, forcing myself to learn my own songs and learn, um, you know, playing playing guitar on my own songs and and also learning a lot of songs that I I never knew. I mean, mm-hmm. as as the pandemic went along, I, I got to be better at this. And now I'm working on an idea of aside from touring with my band, which is my main my main thing. I want to do a songs from my kitchen tour where I take mm. out my laptop and, and there'll be, a you know, it'd have to be in a forming arts center where right. they have, you know, a screen and, and the ability to to to. Um, to, to put uh, stuff up on the screen, but I'll just, I, I did one show um, this summer and uh, songs from my kitchen show. And I just, when I, when I play a song, I say, and now a little feature we call blah, blah, blah. And I push uh-huh. a button and the video comes on and it's really fun. It's that really, and so great. I, and I'm able to, I'm able to represent myself, not just as the guy who strums a guitar and sings these songs, but also as a jazz musician on the screen behind me singing with a big band. So uh, uh-huh. it's something I'm, I'm developing right now. I'm, I'm, Very cool. I'm not, I'm not really a developer. I usually just <laughs> go in, make a record for three days, come out and go tour it. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't use a lot of my, this is, this is probably sounds a little bit too self-deprecating, but I don't use a lot of intellect mm. doing what I do. I use heart. Yeah. You know, I, I hear songs I love and I think, I want to recreate that as a Curtis Tiger song. I want to make yes. a record that sounds like me, but uses that fantastic song that makes me cry every time I hear yes. it. And so, um, so, but, but being stuck at home without that live performance aspect, I've had to think about things in a more complicated way and think about, okay, how is this going to work? How, you know, I've really had to create something uh, out of nothing with this mm-hmm. show. And as corny as it is, and as silly as it is, uh, songs from my kitchen, it's really been an artistic explosion for me. I have loved doing it and uh, making the fil- the little films. I make little mini documentaries yes. about, about songs I like or, or a restaurant in town or, uh, you know, uh, uh-huh. my friend, I filmed my friend teaching me how to make an old fashioned, you know, <laughs> because I got into drinking. I, I got really drunk during the pandemic. No, I mean, I really, I started drinking um, uh, uh, whiskey uh, during the, oh. uh, the pandemic bourbon and then, and then rye whiskey. And I thought, well, I want, I want, I want to learn how to make it old fashioned. So we went to my friend Dave's house and I filmed him making, and he's really Great. very, he's very uh, emphatic and very yeah. uh, studious in the way he makes things. And uh, oh, so, and uh, you know, that's, I'm a filmmaker now. I'm yes. not a good filmmaker, well, I- but I'm a filmmaker. One more thing to the resume. Okay, so I, I love everything you just said because it leads to why I wanted to ask you about a couple of songs in particular. Coincidentally, they both come off the same album. But I can tell, one of the things I, I can tell that I love about this conversation is what a music nerd you are because I totally relate to that. So when you sure. talk about a song that you love that makes you cry wanting to find a new way to do it, I want to ask you specifically about Let's Go Out Tonight mm-hmm. by the Blue Nile. Where the cars go by 
night Why don't you say What's so wrong tonight Pray for me Praying for the life Baby Let's go out tonight That Hats album is perfection, and it uh, you take that song and turn it into this gorgeous jazz standard that only you could do. What's the story behind that? I uh, I made one record with Larry Klein, the producer <clears throat> and bass player Larry Klein, who at, at you know one time in his life was married to, to Joni Mitchell. He made a, mm -hmm. a bunch of very cool Joni Mitchell records that I love. And uh, I've, I've always been a fan of Larry's production. Actually, we talked about making a record back in the late 90s. And then that, you know, I made this record with Larry Klein. And the way we set out to make it was that I would get on an airplane and fly from Boise, where I live now, down to L.A. You know, it's an hour, a two hour flight. And I'd go straight to his studio. He'd make a bunch of espresso. <laughs> and we would just drink coffee and get all wired up mm -hmm. on coffee and we'd play each other songs. We'd just okay. say, well, what about this song? And what about that? So I'd play a song for him and he'd say, oh yeah, that, oh, I dig that. Or yeah, maybe, but what about this? And we just went back and forth. And I, I did two or three, three or four trips down to LA just to play songs with Larry Klein. And mm -hmm. by the end of it, we had an album's worth of, of, of songs. I ended up not writing one of the songs on that record, um, but it's perhaps the most autobiographical mm. album that I ever, that I ever made it. I was making it. I was, we, we, we curated it and made it as my first marriage was falling apart, as my world was, was falling down around me, as my heart was breaking, I, I'm, I'm bringing him these songs that are about a, mar a marriage breaking yes. up or the end of relationships. So, I mean, these songs that I brought in and out of nowhere, he, he pulls out this song by Blue Nile, Blue Nile um, uh, let's go out tonight. And I knew the Blue Nile, but the record that I listened to uh, a lot was uh, uh, Dance Across the Rooftops. Um, I think that's what it's called. Um, Something like that. I have yeah, that album um, too. Yeah. And Walk Across the Rooftops. Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, um, I knew that record, but I didn't really know Hats. And he played actually two songs from that album. He also played... Uh, um, a parade, uh, something on parade. I can't remember, but, but sorry, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought here. That's okay. Uh, when, when I heard let's go out tonight, I, I, I had never heard a song that more perfectly reflected a, a, a relationship that is crumbling. Mm -hmm. it, it's so simple. It's such a brilliant Paul Buchanan has mm -hmm. written so many great songs and they're so often heartbreaking and harrowing, but he uses so few words. He's just, he's a poet. And yeah. the, the idea of, you know, let's, you know, I don't know what's wrong, but 
let's just go out tonight. Let's, let's go out just tonight. Let's just make it okay for now. And he doesn't even say that many words. It's just, that's what he implies with no words at all. And I mean, I, it, like you said, I'm getting, I'm getting uh, goosebumps thinking mm-hmm. about it now. When I first heard it, it just, boom, this is, yeah. this is the center of this album, uh, yes. you know, and, uh, uh, and I did, you know, I did a, a, another song, a, a Richard Thompson song on that record, mm-hmm. uh, Waltzing for Dreamers, which mm-hmm. is more, more an, an old fashioned, you know, heartbroken. I'm, he's out at the pub dancing and, and he's, and he, you know, his love has, has done him wrong. Oh, play me a blue song and fade down the lights. I'm as sad as a proud man can be sad. Just let me dream on Oh, just let me sway While the sweet violins And the saxophones play And miss, you don't know me But can't we pretend That we care for each other Till the band reach the end One step for a Steps for breaking, waltzings for dreamers, and losers in love. One step for sighing, and two steps for crying. Waltzings for dreamers, and losers in love. But this song, this this Blue Nile song, I just uh, it could not have been a more perfect song to to anchor yeah. that record. And we did a really quiet. I mean, I think she we out quieted uh, the Blue <laughs> Nile. Who who you know, Paul Buchanan. He's yeah. got a solo record out um, that is astounding, and it's just him playing piano and singing. And I think oh. he he just out quiets me on that yes. one but uh, <laughs> yeah that a- album is pretty quiet and uh so you everything you just explained makes sense for into temptation by crowded house you opened up your door i couldn't believe my luck you and your new blue Dress, taking away my breath. The cradle is soft and warm. It couldn't do me no harm. You're showing me how to get into temptation, knowing full well. A model of nervous words Could never amount to betrayal Neil Finn is my favorite songwriter of all time. In fact, later tonight, I'm interviewing Tim Finn, which I'm pretty stoked about. Oh my God, you're so lucky. That's so great. I know. know. Split Ends Ends was one of my favorite bands in high school. Love Split Ends. So great. No, that's I'm pretty stoked for those exact reasons. Crowded House was a big one for me. And Neil is my favorite songwriter of all time. And that is such a dark, almost spooky 
internal, you know, black sort of sound, uh, song in general, and you slowing it down in your style. And for the reasons you just said, why? Because your marriage is falling apart. So you're gravitating yeah. towards songs that are making you feel that right then. Well, well, into temptation. I mean, Larry, Larry, when Larry was the one who usually I'm the one who picks how the, 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 uh, the sequence of the songs, mm-hmm. that's the hardest thing for me. I mean, it's harder than writing a song is figuring out which song goes first, which song goes fifth, which is last, mm-hmm. you know, because they're all your babies and you wanted to tell a story, but you also don't want to bury any songs. But in this case, I just let him, I let him produce the record, which I hadn't done in a long time. I'd, I'd produced most of my records uh, uh, before that for, for at least a decade before that. And I let him, he said, okay, here's how I see it sequenced. And he told the story of basically my divorce and mm. then my life coming out of it. Because as we made the record, I was coming out of the divorce and I was starting to to fall in love again mm-hmm. after, you know, after a couple of years, more than a couple of years of, of really, of real sadness and darkness. And I was starting to fall in love with the woman who is now my wife, uh, right on. Jody. And Larry met her um, as we were just, uh, you know, just finishing the record or just finishing up uh, figuring out which songs. And so that song into temptation is, you know, it's about, mm-hmm. it's about, uh, you know, this is some Moving sort on, of for, forbidden on. love uh, yes, and uh, yes. um, in, in 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 the case uh, i don't know if if neil was talking about actual uh, um fooling around which i didn't do mm-hmm. but there's still when you when you're when you've come out of a marriage and especially because i had a kid you know the idea of of falling in love with someone else or being with someone else was still it felt a little taboo it felt quiet so when when i started to fall in love um, we were, we were very, you know, we were very sort of secretive about it because we just didn't, we didn't, you know, we weren't ready to sort of go public, even though we'd been, yeah. we'd both been divorced from our partners for, for, you know, well, I mean, a year, two years, uh-huh. three years. Anyway, that song just fit perfectly into it. And he, yes. and he explained each song as he went through, he said, so this is the third song because this is what happens. This is what happened to you here. And so he kind of, he basically wrote a little biography of me. Of, uh, it was, it was great. And by the end of it, you know, it's, uh, it, you're moving on, you're moving yeah. to the next, yeah. the next step. So that, that album really, aside from it being an album that I, I am so very proud of. I mean, it's, it's so many great people played on it and, uh, um, and, and it just sounds like a million bucks, but it, uh, it, it it also is really is about me, which is, mm-hmm. I think, what an album ought to be. You know? Yeah, I love it. Okay, Curtis, I could go on for hours, but I'm out of time. <laughs> but I have to, I, you're so good at telling these heartfelt stories <clears throat> about interactions with people that matter to you. In two minutes, tell me your favorite music business story. Meeting someone, meeting a hero, interacting with someone, writing with Carol King. Whatever it is, tell me what your favorite story is. Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. I'll just tell you about my my a joyous weekend. Yeah. I, it's 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 the the summer of uh, 1992. My album has been out for nine months. I've been on the charts. I'm uh-huh. touring all over the world, and I am opening at Wembley Stadium, which at that time held 88,000 people, uh, and it was sold out. I'm opening for Elton John, my childhood idol. I had Elton John posters all over my walls. Uh, Eric Clapton and Bonnie Raitt. 
And originally, because I had a big, big hit single in England at the time, they were they wanted me to be the second act after Bonnie Raitt. And I said, oh. I really wanted to play this, but there's no way I'm playing after Bonnie Raitt. She is yes. my she, there's I, I, I she, Bonnie, Bonnie Raitt, Raitt does not open for me. No, so I was first, then Bonnie, then Eric. And uh, I two two really fun moments. I went up to visit. Elton in his dressing room um, at Wembley Stadium for the first time meeting him. And he knew that I'd been talking about him in interviews because he was my, you know, one of my earliest heroes. And so first of all, he, he was just very sweet, very kind to me. And there's a knock at the door. He opens it. Bonnie Raitt walks in. And I'd, oh. I'd, I'd met her before briefly, but I didn't really know her. And so I'm sitting there with two of my idols and, you know, they're, they're being very flirty. Yeah. It was, it was uh -huh. just, Fantastic. Okay. So then cut to uh, that. That's Friday and it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday gigs on Sunday. I'm invited with my then wife. Um, we're invited to Elton's house out by Windsor castle. It's, it's, it's incredible uh, estate. And we, we go to a brunch at Elton's house and Kenneth Branagh and Emma uh, Thompson are there. Paul Brady, Bonnie Raitt, Sting, he wasn't very nice. Um, um, Billy Connolly, um, all oh. these people. It was so cool. It was just like this crazy. And we're just hanging out, having brunch, you know, just. Yeah. It was like a garden thing. You know, we're out in the garden chit chatting. And Elton said, here, come with me. Come see. So he, Elton John, my childhood idol is walking me uh, and my wife around looking at this incredible house. And I, I meet his, his mother and her husband, you know, that I know about yeah. from songs. and. Yes. We're walking, we walk around a corner outside and there's Billie Jean King. The oh, great, Philadelphia the great, Freedom. The great, yeah, exactly. The, the, there's <laughs> Billie Jean freaking King. Wow. Um, and and we're both my, my wife and I are like, uh, hi, he said, oh, these are my friends, uh, Curtis and Amy. And we shook hands with Billie Jean King. It was the craziest Gosh. thing just like so that was that was pretty pretty damn fun yeah you know, that was a really good weekend i'll never forget that weekend i, I got to that. play i got to play saxophone on the bitch's back with elton john my childhood hero and i knew the saxophone solo yes. without ever having played it because it was just like yes. by uh, by aural yes. osmosis it had just yes. entered my soul so anyway, oh good i weekend. love that curtis uh i love you a lot and this life is and I'm not just saying this easily for me, my favorite album of yours. If I didn't feel that way, I wouldn't Thank say you. it. So I'm not just Thank saying you. that to help you promote your new album, which I hope people will check out because I think it's fantastic. Thank you for talking with me. I've always thought you were interesting and I really want to get to know you better. Thank you so much. Cool. All right. Thank you. Really nice to talk to you. All right. There you have it. Curtis Steigers. Wasn't that great? I think it's great. Now, uh, first of all, we should, I'm going to, we're going to close it out here with another song off this life because the album is great. And this is his newer updated version of You're All That Matters To Me. That was sort of the second hit off of that debut self-titled album from 1991. And again, it gives you kind of an idea of what this new album, This Life, is all about. Speaking of which, I've been told I will receive a couple of copies of the CD to give away to you guys. I have not received them yet, but Patreon supporters know, look out in your inboxes for a message from me saying that I've got the email, I've got the CDs, and there'll be a trivia question, and I'll mail them out to whoever wins them, just like normal, okay? Anyway, thank you, Curtis, for talking with me, and I hope you guys heard some things that maybe you didn't know or that really turned you on or whatever, because there's a lot of stuff here when it comes to Curtis. 
Next week's guest is the lead singer of one of the, probably the preeminent new wave bands from the early 80s. This person just put out a book. You probably, that probably just gave it all away. You probably know who this person is, but if you don't, come back next week because this conversation is a trip. Uh, huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man, for everything that you do. Thank you, buddy. Uh, you guys, you can find our find us on Facebook and like our page. You can send us a message on there, or you, you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. By the way, message to all uh, Patreon supporters. I still have a few of those forensics, the Tim Finn Project forensics CDs to give away as well. Answer the trivia question on the page and message me your address and I will get them in the mail to you. And if you're not a Patreon supporter, what is your problem? I've been giving away all kinds of things lately. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you. But that won't happen anymore. And I got it with my life. I don't know what I'd do. Baby, without you, your role that mattered to me. The ground that you walk, the air that you breathe. Someday you discover I don't want no other. Baby